Hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week without Charles, so I'm doing the introduction. I'm Sasha Wolf, and this week on the panel we have Alan. Hello, hello. And Eric. Hello, hello. Good to be back again after a long hiatus. Yeah, so what were you up to, Eric? Ah, you know, lots of work and lots of deadlines. And uh, on top of that, I had some of my painful migraines. So I had to basically double down and just pull long days with a lot of painkillers and get on top of the deadlines. And I'm happy to say that these are behind me, that I can continue my uh, adventures into Elixir land and to be back on the panel. It's great to have you back. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. This week, we want to talk about state management, like when to use in-memory state management, like processes, ETS, and when to go for something like an external database, like Postgres or Redis. And maybe let's like ask the, the big question, like, oh, Alan, do you have used any kind of like in-memory state management, like processes or ETS, any, any scenario where, where you reach for that? I have used gen servers for a little bit of state management, but that's always for like ephemeral data. So if I'm tracking something, especially if it's not important, then, then I'll keep that up. Otherwise, uh, I try to stick everything to Postgres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we had like well, the episode last week was also about using gen servers for keeping the health state of external services. So I think every time you have something which is ephemeral and you can easily reconstruct, like using this saving state inside of a gen server makes sense. But on the other side, like at that point, you have to consider like, okay, what do you do? Or what's the access pattern, right? Like if, if, if you want to access this data through for millions of requests, then having it inside of a gen server could actually lead to building a natural bottleneck, right? Because at the end of the day, a gen server is just a process and a process is messages. And to get the state of a process, you have to pass it a message. So if 10,000 people want to get to know the state of a process, then yeah, it needs to process 10,000 messages. So it only makes sense to, to, to do that in scenarios where you know, okay, this state is going to be accessed by, I don't know, like a few, few very well-specified actors, other processes. Yeah, so, but if you have, I mean, if you have a very read heavy, right, would you want to reach for something like ETS or would you want to reach for maybe just doubling up on your, your data or even reading is could not even necessarily be difficult, right? Maybe it's just the data type that you have in the gen server could be faster, like how you actually store your data in yeah. the gen server. ETS could be helpful there. I mean, ETS has an option for read concurrency. We talked also briefly about that last week, um, but basically for an ETS table, you can say that you want to read concurrently from other processes and then you don't have to do the whole message passing shebang. Again, probably as you said, Alan, probably depends on what kind of data you have there. If you have like super big binaries then or like mid-level binaries, then copying still happens, right? So if you have rather biggish binaries, then maybe um, don't do that and reach for something else. I'm not 100% certain what, what the option there is if you actually have big data you want to share. The big binaries, if I remember correctly, the, the way the binaries are, once you get past a certain threshold of some size, then it's just copying a reference rather than copying the binary itself. Yeah. There's a shared binary section. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that shouldn't be a big issue, I think. Probably, yeah. What is actually ETS? It's just stored for some Elixir uh, storage technology. So it's called or? Erlang Term Storage. Or, eh, Erlang Term Storage. So it's kind of like a, I don't know how would you call that like a key value store. Yeah, it's a key, basically like a key that. value store. It's built in into Erlang, and like the basic idea is that you create an ETS table, and always you have always one process which owns that table. So one the process which creates the table is also the one which owns it. And then it is basically key value store. It has some options to say that you can, for example, only one value for a given key can exist or multiple values for a given key can exist. So if like a back situation, right? When you fetch a key, then you get a back or a list of things. 
but at the end of the day, it's like when you are in a situation where you need shared state and you don't want to go through a single process, then an ETS table with like read concurrency is a very reasonable thing to do. And it even has a write concurrency, but to be honest, I <laughs> that sounds like a recipe for pain. Doing <laughs> concurrent writes on, on, on a shared thing. <laughs> it is the source of so many bugs in other programming languages, right? Shared state. Yeah, it kind of goes against the whole functional ethos of uh, Elixir and Erlang. Is it kind of like, uh, can you think of ETS as a kind of like bit of, uh, Redis that is just built into the Erlang? Yeah, basically. Like, yeah, that's actually yeah. Not, a, not a bad comparison. Yeah. And, and with this, I, it was interesting, like when you mentioned like this process that owns ATS table, does this process kind of like, can you think of this process as kind of like the server for that ETS table and then other processes basically to interact with that ETS table have to send messages back and forth for the actor model? Well, it depends. If, if you do, if you, for example, enable write concur read concurrency, then you don't have to go right. through with server but by default ets tables are private so yes if you mm. if you want to access anything in ets table um, you have to go through the process which which manages that ets table again you, you you don't have to you can say okay everybody can access this ets table of course they need the name of the ets table then so you can just mm. like how you do with the processes you can give the ets table a name you don't have to and if you don't have to you you have to ex access this through a variable like the res thing or ETS new returns. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure. Probably like a Erlang record. And but otherwise, you can give it a tape a name and then reference the ETS table through that name. And yeah, so it's it's kind of like a thinking in terms of Java terms. It's kind of like a private hash map that belongs to a, a class yeah. that's a private field. Yeah, okay. and it has some like some 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 initial things built on top, right? You can, like you can build scan like an ETS table with like predicates. You say okay, like if certain if a key or certain values fulfill certain conditions, then return me all entities which 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 match that. But you can just use it as like a simple key value store. But something I like I, I mentioned last week, um, in a, in a form the former job of mine, we had a scenario where we had a, some very ephemeral data, which means like it changed every thirty seconds, and it was also very specific to each user. So like caching nightmare basically right like HTTP caching it goes out of a window there and we didn't want to hit the database for each and every api request there so what we did we had like one gen server which like fetched um the information for each user like for all users basically which which had this information which were not that many like a few thousand users in, in each given case and then we put that like into the ets table which then from there, we served the API requests. So we basically used ETS and like a gen server as like a lightweight in memory cache. Nice. This really whets my appetite for <laughs> continuing to explore Elixir and specifically this technology. Yeah, one other interesting thing for like keeping state in memory um, is something which I've also very recently only learned about is persistent term. And the fun thing about persistent term is like that it's completely global. Like, <laughs> It's not bound to any specific process, and you can like put stuff in there, and you can get stuff from there. Really, it's basically like the global variables of a beam. And the thing about persistent term is that writing is relatively expensive. So, like the more stuff you have in persistent term, the more writing becomes expensive. But access is always a constant, so O of one. And we actually used in one application to i don't exactly remember but i think like on startup we loaded something and put it in persistent term like a configuration things basically because like it only wrote that once on startup and then every every other process on on the in the application could access the values we had saved there which was pretty fairly nice like not having to to start like one server and like having this whole uh, ets shipping it was made made things a little more simple and it's like a, it's also a nice tool on the tool belt if, if you have this this kind of if you know the VV restrictions it has, and then you can work around that and you can match it to your use case. But yeah, ETS, I was trying to understand. I was just saying, I was trying to understand what's the point of using persistent storage if you can use something like environment variable or something for this kind of configuration. I'm just trying to think in my head, like what would be the advantage over something else? I, I just have a hard time understanding what else I would want to store besides configuration data. Even I think Absinthe actually uses it for something. I can't remember what though. I think it's also related to configuration. So so why would you want to reach for something like that? Is I guess if you're storing something more complex, 
yeah, some kind of specific exactly billing term. It, it, like we, we we loaded like uh, some configuration files on startup because that wasn't like non-trivial configuration and like something you wouldn't really reasonably put into an environment variable because then you would have to put JSON in there or something like that, right? So uh, we 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 had some configuration files we loaded on startup and then put that into persistent terms so we don't have to access these files over and over and over again. That was the idea. But yeah, very very specific use case. Like it's a niche tool for a niche job, I guess. What does the uh, like data, data files, sorry, what does the what does the data files of persistent term look like? Is it actually human readable, like JSON files, or um, just like the, I think that the name is a bit misleading there. Like it, it's persistent term in the sense of like it's persistent across like one uh, invocation of uh, like one runtime, right? So if if the beam shuts down, like you lose whatever is in persistent term. But yeah, yeah like I said, it's a, the name probably is a bit misleading. <laughs> At least that's my impression, I guess. I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked at the documentation too closely. There might be an option to use like a real persistent version. Like maybe somebody can correct me here. But yeah, on that note, like persistent level is actually, um, we already talked about ETS tables. There's also DETS, like D-E-T-S. And what that is, like it's an ETS table backed by a file. So when, when you write to that ETS table, it actually writes it to a file that probably just... To get back to your question, Eric, like how how does that look like? It's probably just like Erlang term to bi term to binary, like so like serialized whatever you put in there. And yeah, but I I haven't used that yet. Like I had not no use case where where I wanted to use ETS with like a file backing it, because then then you can of course retain it across startups, right? Because then you can say, okay, for example, uh, if, if you have an application running in Kubernetes, you can say um, amount of volume at that specific path, uh, like a like a real shared volume, which which uh, survives across invocations across versions of your application. Then you can put your that's pointed to that and then reuse it. But like I said, I, I personally hadn't had a use case where I wanted to do that. At that point, it always feels easier to reach for something like Redis if you have actually data you want to persist across like across starts and shutdowns of your application, then something like Redis tends to be just easier. Gotcha. Thanks. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer, I think. So basically, ETS and persistent term is basically for the duration of a beam and that is something you would reach for for more like longer term inter like in between different sessions, I guess. Yeah. When you're loading your configuration or your complex data into persistent term, how do you usually do that? Because I've seen some people say like, okay, they start up like a, as part of their supervision tree, they start up like a temporary or a transient like gen server, which will do this kind of thing. Or do you like look at something, obviously you don't want to probably put this into a NIT of a gen server, but maybe you want to put this into like a handle continue as part of your bootstrapping process. Yeah, that specific case we actually did like have, um... I think it was a task which was spawned basically at the application startup synchronously, like in line, and, and not doing a handle continue because it was a handle like, and continue is something where you um, which, which then happens out of band, right? Like happened asynchronously, so the rest of the application does actually continue to start up while your continue runs. Uh, but we wanted in that particular case, we wanted the application uh, the configuration to be available to all other processes running after that. So we um, used the task which basically does start a tr transient right like it, it does the job and then dies and the supervisor doesn't restart it because it's transient so that how that particular thing worked was it a top level task that you did it was like the first thing we spun off was this i, th I think yes. i mean at the end of the day that was just a design decision you could also just very much say um i loaded directly in my application callback start callback but then again you have the situation of okay what happens if an error occurs here, like right, like one one time blip. Then I'm not 100% certain what the beam actually would do if you, if you have an error in your application start level, if it would just restart. But if you um, use it in the task, then you get the usual um, supervision guarantees there. Like we will try to restart up until a certain level, and then your application goes down if it like fails five times in a row. I think in a very short time frame. I think that's the default for a supervision tree. For supervision. Yeah, I'm just trying to think because I, I always think that you have to be kind of quick in your startup process, right? Because you I, I don't know how much time you have usually, but I, I guess you could make it wait because something like that loading configuration and making sure that everybody else is waiting for that to be completed, right? That could be a bottleneck for your app starting up. And yeah. that can also be an issue too, right? That's, that's true. In that particular case, like we, the configuration we loaded was like non-trivial, but not as big that the application startup was really, really impacted by that. But it was like the level of overhead where we said like we don't want to do that on every request. 
right? So we don't want to actually access mm. the file system on every request. So again, like it's a something you have to look at into your your application where you say, okay, what are my requirements here and, and what are my mm -hmm. options? So it's like good to know that ETS, like persistent term, gen service, that all of that exists, that you can then choose whatever is appropriate to your particular use case. Yeah, I remember I did, when I was talking about like I had stored, I had a state in gen service, right? The way I did that was actually kind of interesting. I actually, I felt like such a genius when I, <laughs> when I designed this thing. I had a, a, so what happens is that we're, we we wanted to take a look at like our latest data. So one of my clients does uh, cryptocurrency trading and they do uh, they do this with like basically they have like a fund, right? So you give you give them your money and they help you to invest in crypto. And what we had was we used this third party who did all the kind of like account management, et cetera, because you have different exchanges, right? And so we would ask them, hey, give me my latest account data. And then also when I connect, so when you connect with WebSocket, you get your latest snapshot of how much money you have in each account per exchange. And so I used all that into a gen server. And then every time there's a change, right? Because obviously crypto is always going up and down. We get broadcasted what's the latest like snapshot of each account, right? But the thing is, every time you connect, you get a you get the snapshot. And then I use LiveView to actually like connect and hit like and ask the gen server, hey, um, what's the current snapshot? And actually show that in the browser. And then whenever there's an update, I also broadcast that from the gen server across Phoenix PubSub. We'll actually update the uh, live view. And what, what I thought was a genius part was like, if something ever happened to the WebSocket, because those things just disconnect, I just did like a like a kill all or something, or, or, or I figured what I had. Like I had like a, because I had like a cache, I had a gen server, and I also had like the connection, the WebSocket. And I used the the one which was like, if one of these processes died, then, then kill the other ones, kill the ones after that. So that was pretty, pretty useful because like if the WebSocket ever died, I put that at the top, then just kill everything. If the cache ever died, then just restart the WebSocket and get the update the cache again. So it was, it was kind, of, kind of interesting. Like in this case, like I thought it was really, really useful. The only thing that was an issue was... Uh, Trying to figure out, like, if you ever got disconnected from the website, obviously you have to re-authenticate, right? That one revolved around having to have, like, a, a REST request to get a token because tokens are only valid for so long, right? So if you connected, let's say they're valid for 15 minutes. If you ever disconnected, you have to re-authenticate. So how to actually do that kind of part was, was a little bit more tricky, right? Because you don't want to put that into a NIT. So I think I did that with a handle continue or something. It makes sense. I've got a question that like, did you then start up the whole supervision tree for each web socket connection or, or how did that work? Well, there was, a, because this was, we had like a central service, which would manage everything for us. So they basically put everything into one ah, okay. uh, connection. Yeah. Okay, so it was like one web socket connection to an external service and not like, not like a web socket connection to like each user. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, so okay. they, they put everything together for us. So that was the, the nice part. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's always cool when you like can, can use the, the, the OTP semantics or supervisors for sort of strategies to like to do do cool stuff right where you say okay oh this time i'm not going to use one for one this time i'm going to use rest for one and yeah I that's what i was using smart. rest for one i felt like a wizard i was like this is genius <laughs> and i was trying to explain to to this guy who's i forgot what he called it like an analyst or whatever he only does python and r i tried to explain to him and he was like looking at me like it was no big deal i'm like man this is awesome what are you talking about this is great like if this one goes down the rest gotta get restarted i forgot what the exact semantics of what how everything worked but Rest for one was like the perfect strategy in that case. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. I, I don't have a specific example, but I remember like, I think we lost uh, Sasha there. Yeah, he's stuck in deep thought at the moment. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good screenshot. <laughs> it's like a Socrates <laughs> wondering what's going on. Nice, really, really cool. So the gen server, you basically had a some kind of in-memory caching there. What was that solution again you had for that use case with the crypto? Well, the way gen servers work is they have like a recursive function. So what happens is that you, it kind of is, it gets blocked on like a receive call. So when you send messages, right, you actually have to be in a state to receive them. Otherwise they're sitting in your mailbox waiting for you to go check, right? Just like at home, right? If you don't go to your mailbox and check, you can never read your mail. And so what happens is that the way gen servers work is they have some kind of looping function. And so when you loop, right, somewhere in the loop is actually waiting for receiving a message. Mm. And part of that 
part of that function is just having the state and just recalling itself. So that's how, whatever you put in the state, I mean, you could put a list, you could put a map, you can put any kind of data type you want. You can even put like nil if you, if you don't really have any data. And so what I was putting in there was like a struct. So what I usually do is like if, if I, as I, uh, I have a data type that I define within the uh, gen server. Hmm. So whatever it is, so the same name as the module and that's a struct. And then I just put my, you know, design my, my struct using whatever, whatever I need. So in that one, I think I had like a, like a last updated date time plus a, uh, plus all the rows and columns set up already, something like that. And just keep recursively calling that. And then obviously the next, so then if you ever need to update your state in your gen server, you just update your state and then you return a tuple of like, okay, or, or no reply comma, and then the new state. So, and then next time it gets called, it just has that new state that you just returned. So whatever happens, I don't know if that makes sense. So kind of you, have, you basically have a root process that is in the in server, kind of like the, the is it a supervisor perhaps or drop out the terminology here, and that just then recursively keeps on sending messages to child processes to update the state that receives new things from the from yeah. The so I had a in this case I had a WebSocket connection, and every time I got a new message over the WebSocket, I would just send that directly to the Gen server. The Gen server would get that message and then update the state that it has by itself. And then whenever the state got updated, then I would broadcast it over Phoenix PubSub, which like I think the cache was listening to and also the, the live view process. So then that way you'd get a uh, real-time updates. So okay. So the, the, the WebSockets talk to the service and then that, that connects into your uh, Gen server. And then the Gen server talks by Phoenix and live view to the end clients in web browser, basically. Yeah, something like that. Uh, it's been a while since I looked at this project, so mm. it's something like that. So yeah, so th that's how that's how they kind of work. Have you had a moment to to start playing with some Elixir recently? No, I just jumped back into. This is like my first evening <laughs> where I'm back into Elixir, so it hasn't been, it's been a couple of months now, but I will really spend a lot of time with it going forward. Sorry, I just got a message from Adi saying that he ah. won't won't make it today. All right, because okay. he is fostering a monkey. So that's like interesting topic. Uh, yeah, I, yeah? I, that's what I was just read. So I think it's an interesting topic to bring up next time I see him. <laughs> Definitely, it sounds pretty good. All right. I guess besides ETS and persistent term, are there other typical state management solutions in Elixir that would be of interest to our listeners? So persistent term storage, ETS, gen servers. There's also agents, right? Have you heard of an agent before? Vaguely. Please do elaborate. So agents are actually built upon gen server, if, if that makes sense. But there's kind of like a simple, if you want to have some kind of like, actually look up exactly how they call it, specific only to, sir, if I remember, they're a way to store state. All the IRS do is, is actually just store state only. And they have very, very simple, primitive, like kind of uh, things where you could just basically update the state. So if you want to do something more and more complicated, you'd probably reach for a gen server. If you're just storing state and maybe incrementing a value or doing some very light kind of changes, then you'd probably want to reach for an agent. So an agent is just like a simple way to store state and you have the ability to update that state. A lot of times I see people using like gen server for things that have like more complication. And sometimes they use like an agent to kind of back like a cache for that uh, gen server in case the gen server goes down. Because obviously when you're when you're doing changes to state, you may have an issue, right? Where something doesn't go properly and you want to just restart that agent or restart that gen server. And then if you don't have a way to get back the existing data, then maybe you want to just get, get it from like that that cache uh, agent. Hello, Sasha. Yeah, I'm back. <laughs> Lost my internet connection there. Nothing I could do about that. Yeah, you were you were frozen in state thinking about something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something like that. Right. <laughs> I forgot where we left off when you were on, but I was just talking about agents, right? How that's yeah. another kind of way to store state. Good point. Like it's yeah, it's basically like an abstraction on top of gen server to just literally build to do state management, right? So yeah. 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 What I what I remember seeing people usually use agents for like backing a cache to a gen server, from what I can remember. So quite a while ago that I used an agent actually. Can't even remember when I did the last time. Like well, when when I do state management, I tend to just use Gen Server because it's more flexible. Have you ever used an agent, Eric? Like any agent experience there? Sorry, not yet. No way to go. Yeah. I mean, the agent is interesting. Agent is, for example, also something which is not, as far as I know, not available in Erlang. Like it's really an Elixir thing. 
and the, the API is kind of interesting. I'm not sure how, how much you talked about that, Alan. I don't want to. Don't no, I just said it's very simple, right? It's just a way to update, delete. I mean, it's very simple. It's basically only about managing the state rather than doing yeah. more complex type of uh, things. Yeah. I think, I think it's pretty interesting that you like you tend to just pass it functions, right? Like when you say, okay, I want to update state and I pass it a function to update it. Uh, I want to get it. Even then, when you when you, when you say agent get, you can pass it a function and then say, for example, if, if it hasn't map, you only fetch one particular key from the map instead of having to send the whole map in the message. So yeah, if it's certainly also like a, a good tool in the toolbox of state management. Anything else? Anything we missed? In terms of like in memory store, I think we're pretty pretty well covered now, right? Yeah. So in terms of so I guess yeah. So these are all kind of like things that are typically used with Erlang and Elixir that are built in. But when it comes to solutions that are not part of the Erlang Elixir landscape, what are the most typical use cases? I mean, we already touched on Postgres and uh, Redis very briefly. For me personally, the, the, those two are, are the ones I usually reach for, right? Basically, do, do you need key value, simple key value storage? Go for, go for with Redis. Do you need anything more complex than that? Then Postgres. Postgres is in general just a great uh, general purpose database, like a, with a JSON table, uh, JSON columns. And I think it even has like some key value capabilities, but I've never reached for that personally. So. Yeah, but Postgres tends to be the hammer for, for every nail mm. if I actually want to store something real persistent, right? How about uh, NoSQL? Because that's really up my alley. I've been using MongoDB for years and uh, a few other NoSQL solutions that are kind of like, just like I mean, JSON buckets and collections. Is that a typical? Is that, are those NoSQL technologies typically used together with Elixir early? As far as I know, like there are open source bindings for MongoDB, for example, but my experience tends to be that the community reaches more for traditional like SQL databases. So for example, Acto ships with a Postgres adapter, right? Like, well, not technically there is post, you have to install Postgres, but as far as I know, it's maintained by the same people. So, and there are bindings for. I think there are MySQL bindings, but I'm not 100% in the picture about how up-to-date and how well-maintained they are. And everything beyond that tends to be then community space. So like, um, like I said, they're, they're, I know that there are bindings for MongoDB, but I couldn't tell you like how, how good they are. And like Ecto and Postgrex, like that, that's something where, where as, it, as it is maintained by, by Jose and, and by, by other people at the core team, like it has a very high quality, right? Like you can really rely on, on being stable and, and mature. So, yeah. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, there's, for my sequel, they just worked on a... Um... By they, I, somebody in the core part was just working on my XQL. So I believe that's the the new. So there used to be another MySQL driver, and then it kind of got abandoned or just wasn't in a good state. So they ended up rewriting the whole thing. I think it was done by um, I forgot to say his name, Ver, Vertek or something. I forgot what how to heck to say his name. Uh, I think he's a guy from Poland. Uh, he works at Dashbit. Uh, but in any case, I mean, it was been rewritten from scratch and. They now accepted Phoenix. Phoenix Framework finally accepted uh, SQL Lite as an official adapter for I think version the next version of uh, Phoenix Framework. And then I do know that there is a adapter for so Ecto adapter for MongoDB. Oh, there is. I've seen it before. Yeah, but I don't know how well it's been updated. And Ecto is pretty like designed around the idea of having an SQL database, right? I mean, with Ecto Query and stuff. So how, how well does that map? Have you uh, used it? Ever? Well, I mean, in general, right? Like I I remember reading the Ecto book and I remember them talking like basically, I mean, don't forget that they did uh, start to split up Ecto, right? There's Ecto SQL and then there's Ecto. So if you can make the bindings for whatever storage format, you can do it, right? Maybe not all functions are supported, but yeah, you can do it. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned that you can actually use Ecto with like a CSV file. 
like a CSV file, right? It's not really a database, but I mean, you could still use it somehow. I, I tried, this has been like a long time since I read the book, but I remember them discussing something about that. So as long as you make the adapter, I mean, you could use it for whatever kind of storage format. Again, the features may not work because this is very biased towards a traditional RDBMS, but uh, you can do it. I mean, if you think about MongoDB, I mean, you could put a reference to a document ID somewhere else. So what could be the, you know, what could be the difference after some, some time? I have to admit, I've never used MongoDB. Right. But I just so. had to build your own adapter. Sorry. No? Eric, you first for a second. The, uh, GitHub repo for, <laughs> ah, sorry. Yeah, I was just looking at the GitHub repo for Mongo, the MongoDB adapter for Ecto. It hasn't been updated in three years, so I think it looks like abandonware. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Three years ago. The blog entries are also super old. Just, just Googled Ecto MongoDB. Like I said, I do remember somebody working on this, but I think uh, maybe he became busy or something because it's a very niche, like, like Sasha was saying, it's very niche in the community. Hmm. My, my impression is that like MongoDB is something which is pretty big in the JavaScript community. But yeah. beyond that, I, I mean, like, I mean, I've never used a lot of JavaScript apart from like using it in the browser. So I, I never had any contact with MongoDB. So it, it is something which 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 feels, at least to me, as uh, being a solution quite bound to a specific community, which, which is the JavaScript community. I'm not sure why that is, to be honest, but it seems to be at least to be my impression. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, from the start, from my personal experience, when I first got acquainted with MongoDB, I was it was, it was really really convenient because you can basically have a React or Vue or Angular, Angular JS, or even Ember Spa application, and mm -hmm. that just you know creates a a JSON object and you send it off to a Node.js backend that then inserts this object after validation directly into a MongoDB database where you have basically the data structure remaining very intact. You don't have to do any any serial serialization or deserialization, a lot of path from the front end into the uh, back end yeah. and then to the database. There's yeah. only been, from my recollection, right, of working in different places, there's two reasons that people use MongoDB. This, again, this is just my own experience, right? So the JavaScript community, mostly because you're still working with JSON data. So I heard this, I heard this from quite a few different companies. It's like, I come in, I ask them, okay, why are you using MongoDB? Just to kind of hear what they're talking, you know, why they why they use it. Because sometimes they still have relational data, but they still use it, right? And they say, oh, we're working with JavaScript, so you know, it makes it's easy to serialize back and forth. So to me, it's not really a good excuse because you can do that with anything, right? It's a very standard format. So that that's one thing I've heard is some kind of thing about using JSON data was something was usually the the, the excuse I hear. And then the other one is, and I think this one makes the most sense, is that because it's unstructured. So I used to work at a a vendor, a software vendor in finance. And whenever you want to make a change in finance, you have to file a request, you have to prove your case, you have to do months of talking about this, right? But if you're using MongoDB, well, just throw up your collection and do whatever you want. You don't even have to change the collection. You can use the same collection. You can just change your format all of a sudden. You can do whatever you want, right? So that was the workaround about against the DBA was that we just use MongoDB. The DBA will support MongoDB and I can store whatever I want. I don't have to ask the DBA to make a change for me. I can do whatever I want to do. So that worked out for them, right? And that one, I think, makes the most sense. But so, so, you know, so, then you got compliance issue, right? So a technical solution to an organizational problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say it's organizational, but it's also an issue of... <laughs> It, that's the regulated industry. What are you going to do? Yeah, right? you can, yeah okay. It's kind of funny. But that was also the first time I've ever seen where people actually lost data. So luckily, they were storing somewhat ephemeral data in MongoDB. But if you're just thrashing the database like crazy at certain times of the day, and MongoDB just cannot handle a lot of data. At least at that, this is years ago, right? So maybe things have, I think this would probably improve. This is like uh, 10 years ago or something, uh, maybe maybe even longer than that, five years ago or so, eight years ago. Uh, many, many years ago, more than five years for sure. And yeah, they definitely lost some data. And uh, MongoDB also have to have like a, I think they said they recommend like you have like as much memory, much as much RAM as you have disk space for your data because you want to fit everything in, in RAM and then you flush it just flushes to the to the disk every once in a while. Oh boy. Yeah it's it's a little bit well, that's how they end up losing data I think was that it, it just crashed before it could flush to the disk. So that's why they end up missing data somehow. I I, I try to remember so sorry if I got the details wrong. But I know now they have commits now they have transactions now so it should be better. Maybe Eric knows more than me. 
about this one? Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty lightweight technology, I would say. And uh you highlighted some of the like typical let's say reasons that people put forth for using MongoDB. Uh it's it's schemaless, it's very flexible, and the overhead isn't very big. I mean, I have an example that I just delivered a platform that uses MongoDB as a, as a persistence layer. And it's such a job matchmaking tool where you have company profiles, you have job uh, listings, and you have job seeker profiles. And if I want to say, for instance, add a new uh, field to the job seeker profile, or ah, actually, there's actually one that I have, we have in a ticket. We have to update the uh, job listing model to have the field to the job listing at the company's page. And the way it's currently set up, it's I would just go into the app application, just add a new field, add some logic to the back end that just you know validates this is a valid field, and then that's that's all I need to be able to handle that. And also the front end is kind of very tolerant, I would say, of uh, fields that are missing because the React front end application is just peppered with these conditionals of like, okay. If this field is has some content in it, it doesn't even matter if it's undefined or null or an empty string. It's just like if there is some meaningful string value in it, then it will use it somewhere. And it's really, really simple to to add new fields or change fields or do anything like this. I have a MongoDB uh, database just from my experience. But to a certain degree, you can achieve the same like with Postgres, right? But with JSON columns. Because then at the end of the day, you can just also put in there whatever you want. You could, you could have a table with like ID and then a column with like JSON contents. And then you basically have like a, a no SQL <laughs> SQL table. <laughs> it's interesting. I actually had a, uh, I did have a application I was working on three years ago where we had that scenario similar to that, where we would have a list of trips and uh, after the fact, we, we introduced localization. So instead of like upgrading the relational schema to be able to, to support localization, which would have been very tricky, I think, we basically just inserted a JSON object into every string column. So if you, for instance, had, I don't know, like the title of the trip, the title field would literally contain a JSON object that had like two keys, one for Norwegian, one for English, and then the values would be the actual names of the trip in both languages. Yeah. It was hacky, but it worked because yeah. And the, the, the cool thing of Postgres there that actually has like a JSON column type, right? Like it even has mm. querying capabilities, like you can query the contents of a JSON column. I didn't have to do that yet because like mm. at that point, like feels like you maybe should reconsider how you how you store your data but it is possible so yeah the the, the cases where, where i wanted to store something more schema less i like for example if you have like an adjacent an actor schema and you have like an embedded map right for example with some properties that adjacent column was always good enough at least for my, my my personal experience it tends to be having schema less or everywhere is convenient but also something which can bite you down the road because like well, you don't have a schema, right? At a certain point, like what happens when you when you have uh, like super super old records in there? You always have to retain these back this back backwards compatibility. I'm not sure if MongoDB has like an option to run turn uh, like like um, not transactions like sorry, but um, migrations. If that's something which which is common in the MongoDB community, where you say okay, I actually have like a bunch of records here, and I want to update them in a certain way to just drop a bunch of code, which would otherwise have to retain backwards compatibility. Yeah. I don't but, even think it's a, it's, if it's a thing, it's not a big thing that I yeah, okay. know. Like yeah. I said, I haven't used MongoDB myself. Yeah. Like the one thing I, I did use like uh, to, to do to get back like into Elixir was actually, I, I have used a Neo4j, like a graph database in Elixir. And there is a driver for that, which at least last time I looked was actively maintained. But as soon as you reach for like data stores, which are not that, uh, quotes, mainstream, um, especially in a language like Elixir, like the support becomes uh, spotty at, at best, right? Like the, the, the Neo4j driver was actually fairly decent, but um, then you don't have these niceties, like for example, as you have an Ecto where you can say, okay, I can now compose my SQL query, basically, like I write SQL directly mm -hmm. by using Ecto query, but then you have to actually write your Cypher queries, which is what Neo4j is using like as a big string, because 
well that's that's how it is right like nothing you can do there but yeah for your question about uh, mongodb when i was in the bank we actually used mongodb for so we worked on a project which was like reporting that time i have to say it i think if i remember correctly it actually makes quite a bit of sense because you had one page of data so that was one record in the collection and because that was just a lot of data it was just one record right with everything we wanted all in one and if we ever wanted to run that again like like maybe we had new data updates we wanted to have the same report for the same time frame we actually versioned it like version one version two so we would say like in mongodb give me the one with the latest with the most highest version and you know show me that right for the states and so mongodb made a lot of sense in that case and also the data was uh, the data was kind of ephemeral in the sense that we could just regenerate it right yeah okay. so we weren't the single source of truth so it was okay so I think in that case, it actually made sense. Um, and in your question about the migration, right, we actually had to handle this part because, of course, we're adding fields and removing fields. And so we built something similar to what you have, like, with Ecto, where you have, like, a migration table, and then uh, you'd want to make sure, like, what's the latest, like, what's the version of the data? And so we actually had to go back to previous records and update all those, like, add in missing fields, et cetera, put some default values in there if we didn't have them, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we, we had to hand roll that one. Yeah, it's like a trade-off you make there, right? Because you have to ask if you get if you go down the schema-less route, then you obviously the the, the responsibility of managing managing the schema falls to you as a developer, and that's that's something you have to do then. I don't think that was the issue. I think the issue was my manager, for some weird reason, decided to write his own ORM for MongoDB, <laughs> so we're using his. So oh, I, I don't know. He's he's from that generation where it's like you just hand roll everything yourself. <laughs> So yeah, that was fun. It was like it is the nice part was like if there was a bug, I could tell him. And the sad part was that there was quite a few bugs. So again, I had to tell him a lot. <laughs> so I don't know. Again, like you said, trade-offs, right? So it's nice sitting next to the maintainer and bugging him. And, and also he's the lead in the project. So he has to fix it right away. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. No, but you're right about I mean uh, the, the whole MongoDB doesn't come with migrations out of the box. And uh, I've also had to do some kind of manual migration scripts and I wrote my own things there and uh, I think we ran into some issues recently with some old properties that were just you know, old objects and that we and I were completely disused so basically to do the maintenance I had to write a proper script to manually go through every single object uh, document and just delete those old things so uh, if you don't know what you're doing you can really run into a lot of problems yeah. over the yeah to get back to where we initially started so Basically, like in a nutshell, you can say if you have any data, you can, where losing it is not a problem, right? Like you can store it in memory, like gen server, CTS tables, persistent term. But as soon as you come in a situation where you like want to retain data between restarts of your application, then yeah, reaching for something like Redis, Postgres, or MongoDB uh, makes sense. And I mean, we, we have like one interesting project here at my current employer where we actually went like a slightly different route because um, there we had until now used uh, Redis to, to store some authentication information for each user. user, But now we run this in a cluster, like a, a cluster application, like multiple instances, and um, actually have like set up shared state across the cluster, which gets synchronized and then by doing a deployment for Kubernetes, like a rolling deployment where like one thing shuts down and the other, like one after another, right? Like not everything at once. It actually like migrates that state to the new applications and we keep everything in memory and don't have to do use for Redis anymore. And like, even if we would lose like some authentication information there, like it's this level of data where it's not bad, like there's no harm, like we're using a few authentication tokens for you few users, which then have to knock in again. But in general, like we, we don't want to use all authentication tokens, right? Just for deployment, not everybody should be forced to lock in again. So it felt like a like this in-between thing where losing a little bit in certain cases is not the end of the world. And then actually having a Redis, which <laughs> is also not free, if you do a managed Redis on AWS, for example, going down the, the managed, like the in-memory clustered state, which then migrates um, to the new instances was actually um, something like kind of like an in-between solution, which, which worked out fairly nice for us. So that's also something if you like really want to go down that route, if you say, okay, I have some in-memory state, which is like semi-persistent, then then that's also an option to, to, to cluster your application and make sure that the state gets migrated to new instances of your application yeah 
So that was fairly interesting. Is this kind of the uh, eventual consistency uh, model yes, for basically. databases? Yeah. yeah. Like what we are using there is like a library called Delta CRDT, which is actually like built on top, like it implements like something which has been written in a paper for like distributed state. Uh, state. And it's also used in, for example, Horde, which is like a distributed supervisor for, for, for Erlang and Elixir. And like we, we use that, but just basically, basically it's like a distributed map. So like when you, you can put a key in there, you can get a key in there. And then like it, it does the, ma the magic thing of like synchronizing it through, through data across the cluster. Yeah. Like the only thing you have to do basically when you, when you start it up, you need to tell it, okay, these are your peers on like, for example, on this node over there, like this, that, that process is like the one you need to synchronize this. And then it does the hard job of synchronizing. But of course, like you, you run, you have eventually, you have eventual consistency guarantees. For that particular case, we, like that was good enough for us, but again, like it's a trade-off you, you make there, right? You can also be considered to use Amnesia, which is also built into Erlang, which is like a distributed database. But Amnesia has a very, very bad behavior when it comes to net splits. Uh, because like there's no built-in solution to like if you actually have a net split in your application and then you want like the nodes connect back and you have diversion state then amnesia has like no built-in solution for that like, you have to resolve the conflicts yourself then so yeah so what's that ne next split That's next it? split so basically like yeah. uh network partition so yeah, network partition nodes become disconnected from each other so like, for example, if you have five nodes running and three nodes stay connected and two other nodes stay connected, and then like, what do you do, right? Like, but they, 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 they can't talk between each other anymore. And the, the, there are solutions to that problem. Like, for example, say majority rule, where you say, okay, only majority is allowed to write data anymore. And the minority is only allowed to read data. But <laughs> yeah, it, 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 there you get into the areas of distributed computing and, and this stuff gets really, really hard very quickly. And for, for us, like having the, the Delta CIDT with like the eventual consistency was like good enough for that particular use case. Like if, for example, then one node writes a uh, authentication token again, because like it does, did the off key refresh and the other node does it the, also, then like one of these tokens wins out. So what? But uh, yeah, these are the questions you have to ask yourself then. Nice. Yeah, this kind of consensus algorithms uh, between distributed systems was coming up with a good one is the kind of thing that will land you a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my, my, my professional opinion on that is like, there is no peanut, uh, no, 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 like uh, cookie cutter solution to this. Like it's always trade-offs. It's always okay. Like what are my requirements here? And like, how, which solution best models, best maps to these requirements? That's the answer a manager loves to hear. It depends. Yeah, it's true. I feel like the more experience I have, the more often I give this answer. <laughs> okay, folks, do we have anything else? Anything you'd like to cover like in terms of state management on, on the beam? I don't think so. I feel like even though it's quite a few, it's not very many, right? But those ones seem to be pretty, pretty much uh, very good solutions. You know, it's interesting how few how few methods there are, but at the same time, those methods seem to be so powerful enough that we don't really need too many more. Yeah. yeah to boil it down, you have in-memory store storage, you have like an external services storage, and then you have mechanisms to save in-memory storage through various options, right? That, 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 that everything can be boiled down to that, I guess. That's a pretty good summary. Okay. Then I guess we can go to picks unless somebody wants to scream one last thing. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Yeah, Eric, why don't you start us off after being on a hiatus for a while? Oh, well, 
<laughs> you caught me off guard there, but I will simply pick Notion, which is the preferred note-taking tool that I'm using for all of my stuff. It's really a dream for me to be working with this. Today I was doing my accounting and I was just looking at the bill that I have that I've had for Notion. And it's crazy. I think like for a year of Notion, I paid somewhere between 40 and 50 bucks. And they have this thing where you can uh, have unlimited amount of guests or pages and a tree of subpages. And I actually am hosting quite a few things in here, like the all of the notes for an entire React course uh, that I'm part of teaching, different projects and so forth. And uh, it just keeps on impressing me. This is really great note taking tool. So a lot of my life is pretty much in Notion. So uh, yeah. I can highly recommend that. And uh, now that they are actually having, they have their public API, I think it's in beta or it's going to, it's, it's becoming quite stable. There's a lot of interesting use cases popping up there. So people are starting to use Notion, both in good ways and very bad ways, I have to say. So yeah, that's my pick for today, Notion. Nice. Ellen, what are your picks or pick? Yeah, sadly, I just have one pick today. I have a client who is in the financial space I'm not going to say too much more because he wants me to be quiet about his business. And, and, but, but in any case, right, he, he asked me, because it's, we're doing financial data, he wants to be able to encrypt end-to-end. And so my encryption skills and understanding it is quite limited. So I've been taking some time since yesterday, maybe even the day before, to dig in this book called Real World Cryptography from Manning. And, you know, I'm pretty okay with math. It's probably my strongest subject, but at the same time, like when math gets pretty complicated, my eyes start to glaze over and I just cannot handle it. <laughs> so, but this book, Real World Cryptography, has been nice because it, I, I've only gotten, I'm on the second chapter and there hasn't been any math so far. And even he also said, the, the author said, there's not very much math at all. He's going to just be going over like the basics. And so for me, this book has been really, really good to really understand like some cryptography uh, how I can pair certain types of cryptography together to make you know things uh, more safe, right? And uh, it's been really useful for me to understand like more about how cryptography works, hashing, things like that, at a high level, so that at least I have an idea about what's going on. And uh, I think once I understand how how things are kind of working at a high level, then I can start to choose which ones I want to pair together, and also you know make sure that there's no kind of spoofing, man in the middle kind of stuff. So yeah, I think this book is pretty good. So that's why I'm, I'm definitely picking it. I think you guys should check it out. Great. So I have one pick this week and we talked about a bunch of OTP stuff today and also last week. And that made me uh, remember a book I read a while ago called The Little Elixir and OTP Guidebook. And it's a fairly short read. And it's pretty interesting because in there you actually build like a supervisor step-by-step step yourself, like by, by building like a load testing tool yourself and yeah it, it really goes with you through the all these steps and all like the, the train of thoughts you have and, and ends up at something which is very similar to otp and helps you to appreciate and better understand like how, how all the, the the little building blocks in otp come together to build, uh, like some of the parts is bigger than the whole right so yeah the little elixir and otp guidebook it's uh on Manning and that's a pretty good rating. Okay, I guess that's it for this week. Then thanks for listening and tune in next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.